Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. The real subject of all poems is the dying breath, says Lee Young Lee. Today on Rewrite Radio, the poet explains this claim and others in conversation with his friend and fellow poet, Nick Samaras. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. My name is Otto Salas. I teach in the French department at Calvin College. I'm also a faculty fellow at the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. In this episode of Rewrite Radio, we bring you a session from Festival 2004. Listen in as two poets, Lee Young Lee and Nick Samaras, define the demonization of lyrical language and explore the meaning of pauses as articulated in poems. Along the way, they reminisce about their lives as readers and writers, speaking about their own stories as pilgrimage. Lee Young Lee has written five highly acclaimed volumes of poetry, Rose, The City in Which I Love You, which was named the Lamont Poetry Selection, now the Loughlin Award, Book of My Nights, which received the William Carlos Williams Award, Behind My Eyes, and most recently, The Undressing. He is also the author of a memoir, The Winged Seed. This book takes up his parents' political exile from China, which transported the Lee family first to Indonesia and then to Pennsylvania. Lee has received multiple additional honors, including fellowships from the Academy of American Poets, the National Endowment of the Arts, and a Guggenheim. Nick Samaras is the author of two books of poetry, Hands of the Saddlemaker won the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award, followed by American Psalm, World Psalm. His poems have appeared in The New Yorker, Paris Review, Poetry, and The Kenyan Review, as well as elsewhere. Nick Samaras and Lee Young Lee from Festival 2004. In preparation for uh, getting together to have a good conversation with you, um, I had the, the nice practice of just reading all of your books again, um, from, from book one uh, to the most recent book. And one of the things that I was pleasantly struck by, again, is, is the whole idea of not finding poetry that has definitive answers, but finding poetry that has, has very clear very genuine questions. And so I thought that um, in looking over um, the bulk of your writing thus far, if you might have some commentary in, in your ideas of, of questioning and seeing what that pilgrimage might lead to. Sure, yeah. Um, it's great to be here with you, Nick. I, um, I don't know what, 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 what? 
the idea of questions, and and not not so much looking for definitive answers, but first of all coming to the right questions. And perhaps in your work, have you ever have you been able to verbalize what some of the questions might be for you, in in a you know an exploration of the self in poetry? I can't even tell if I'm asking the right questions. You know, I know that my uh, Somehow my whole being is troubled all the time, and so I'm just always asking questions. And, uh, so, I mean, that's part of the... You know, <clears throat> I think a lot of it has to do with my own... Uh, mm, I don't know. Uh, uh, God, I don't... I, I, quite frankly, I don't know how to respond, <laughs> Nick. I just... <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know anything. You know, Brett Lott said he's talked about being a, a fool, and uh, I guess um, yeah, I felt he was speaking for me too. You know, so those are just questions of a, a fool. I, I write like a fool. I live like a fool. I, I guess I'm a fool. You know, and uh, I never. I mean, I have the foolish, even more foolish than that. I suppose I've come up with all kinds of theories about writing and what it has to do with my life and. None of them really, uh, they don't serve as any refuge for me or any, uh, uh, you know, any answers. So I just keep asking questions. Yeah. I don't know. That wasn't a very good answer, I guess. No, I think, I, I think it's great to start with a question. And, um, you know, in, in going back over some of the themes that you write about, it becomes clear that, like perhaps all of us who write, uh, we are working with a language, a set language, and trying to come so, to some sort of clarification. Whether And what I see in your writing is really a clarification of the heart, relationships, and, and how those relationships interact with our daily experiences. And I know you write a lot about your family and the fact uh, of your biography coming to America and the understanding and the sharing of different cultures and um, the sharing and understanding of all of the common imagery that we have in writing in expression of that, and whether we are up to the task sometimes. So what I see and, and what I enjoy uh, about your writing is that you take imagery germane to all of us and infuse it with a uniqueness, a genuineness of, of appreciation just by the noticing of it. Well, thanks. You know, my sense is, you talked about the themes, like my family and biography and things. I think ultimately, though, for me, there is only one subject. And uh, those themes or whatever are kind of, not to denigrate them, but they're almost props. You know, it seems, let me back up and try to talk about it this way. It seems to me that a poem is a score for human speech. It's a musical score, the same way you know you could write a musical score for violin or piano. And so a poem is a score for the human voice. And uh, 
So it's the human voice scored. It's human speech. But when you think about the nature of speech, um, we notice, I mean, you mentioned exhalation when we were talking earlier, and uh, you notice that the majority of human speech uh, is done with the exhaled breath. Um, and it seems to me if we're writing poems, we should think a little bit about the nature of what we're doing. Or maybe not. I don't know. It might actually get us in more trouble. But the nature of speech, most human speech, is that it's done with the exhaled breath. There is a kind of speech called ingressive speech, I'm told, that certain cultures practice. But I'm told that it's mostly practiced by uh, uh, grandmothers and uh, uh, who... Uh, relay secrets to other grandmothers. That's what I'm told. But uh, the kind of speech that I'm doing right now is done with the exhaled breath. Uh, and so if you think about the nature of breath, it complicates things too, because uh, when we breathe in, uh, our bodies are filled with life. Uh, our blood is filled with oxygen. Our skin, in fact, gets very flush. There's proof, uh, scientific proof, in fact, that our bones get very hard and compacted and our muscles get very toned. Uh, when we breathe in, we're very comfortable. The body is very happy. It could breathe in uh, to capacity without much trouble through training. And the body feels very affirmed. Uh, when we breathe out the exhaled breath, uh, nutrients leave the bloodstream. Our skin becomes flaccid. Our muscles get uh, flaccid and our bones actually soften. I mean, that's scientific our bodies get very relaxed, but if you breathe out to maximum capacity, you'll notice that you begin to struggle for the intake. You know, the body isn't as comfortable on the uh, exhalation as it is on the inhalation. That's because uh, the exhaled breath, breath is the dying breath. Uh, the inhalation is the infeeding breath. The complication comes, I think, almost the tragic or the anxiety-making circumstance for me is that verbal meaning is only possible with the exhaled breath. And so if you notice, the more I say, the more my meaning gets disclosed, right? So, so as you say a sentence, uh, the more you divulge, the more the meaning uh, gets revealed, but the less breath you have. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So meaning increases in opposite ratio to vitality. That's a small paradigm for human living, uh, it seems to me. So speech itself is a paradigm for human living. That is, as we die, as we expire, uh, the meaning of our lives gets disclosed. Uh, so it's a tragic uh, thing for me, and it, it seems to me that ultimately a poem is not only a score for human speech, but it's a score for our dying breath. Or if you see it as a paradigm for living and dying, it's a score for our dying uh, I, I don't know why that fills me with uh, elation and terror at the same time, you know. And it seems to me that it's possible that a, somebody writes poems because they can't stand that situation, and they try to ransom the dying breath by packing as much content into the utterance as possible, uh, as much psychic, emotional, uh, erotic, spiritual... Uh, intellectual content as possible into the exhalation. And, uh, and I think that accounts for why poetry is more dense than prose, you know, because uh, we're trying to pack so much into it. 
And so that is anxiety uh, making. But I think ultimately what that means is that the real subject of all poems is the dying breath. It's you basically a poem is the figuration of the dying breath. And uh, so aside from a poem being about, for instance, my father or you know my children or a lover or eating fruit or whatever, ultimately the the hidden subject is the dying breath. And uh, so there is only one subject, I guess. Or maybe the hidden subject is dying. And what dying means and what we make of our dying here, you know? Yeah. I think I think that's also what we do with with the whole process of writing. We had talked right before we came in, we had talked about um uh the phrase ekphrasis, um, which I'm happy to say I know what it actually means because it's Greek. <laughs> um, that you know we take our phrases and and we we exhale them outwardly. I it makes me think of the human nature, the human tendency to want to place profundity upon dying last words. Um, we're always fascinated. Every everybody has those fascinations with. Well, what are the famous last words of famous people? The only one I could think of is Oscar Wilde, um, who who uh, his last words were actually either this wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> and um, but but the tendency is is to look for that measure of profundity, that measure of wisdom, in perhaps even last words. So perhaps you know you're you're exactly on target with this thought that what we're looking for is is a measure of the profound in our lives you know to make our lives more meaningful yeah and you know Nick here's here's another thing that I've been wondering about since we walked in here too now it seems to me that when we breathe in the body feels affirmed you know it feels very comfortable when we breathe out uh, less so but if meaning is only verbal meaning is only possible with the exhaled breath, what we notice is when we breathe in, the body is affirmed, the body mind. If you want to call it the ego, Nick and I were talking about ego and what is ego on our way over here. But let's just say, for the sake of this discussion, that ego is body mind, the mind that associates itself with this body, right? The the, the mind that says I I and this. When we breathe in, that I is, feels very affirmed. But when we breathe out and talk. Uh, that I gets displaced, right? So verbal meaning is only possible at the displacement of the ego. That sounds nice. It's like, well, okay, everybody get rid of your ego, you know, but, and everybody, uh, of course, ultimately poetry is demonized speech, you know, and it makes sense to me now because uh, the evacuation of the ego is, on the positive side, it's an, an enhancement and a, uh, an enlargement or an expansion of what we narrowly define as the I, so that speech again uh, enacts that very thing. You know, th that verbal meaning is only possible at the displacement of the ego, right? Because as I breathe out, the ego gets less and less uh, space, and the meaning takes up more and more room. Is this making any sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah very much so. So th that whole the demonization issue is something that really troubles me too, because it seems to me that poetry is ultimately demonized speech. That's what it is. You know, but as we know in the story, for instance, Jacob in the Old Testament, demonization comes at a risk, right? I mean, you wrestle God, you get your name changed from the name of a person, Jacob, to the name of a multitude, right? Israel, 
right? You get enhanced, you get expanded, but you walk away crippled. So it seems to me that this kind of shattering of the human countenance, the human figure, is part of the work of poetry. So what does that mean? That on the one hand, you know, it's, it's nice. I mean, we love, we love it. It, it. it affirms human value within God. And, but at the same time, there's this other aspect to it. Uh, there are Chinese words up there. Um, <laughs> This is why we're here. Oh, okay. Um, um, and, and so it's this demonization that, that sometimes troubles me, too. That, that is also one word that's, that's troubled me a, a lot. Um, uh, the, the word themonos. Uh, when, when, we, when we discuss language, when we read poetry, when we read literature... Um, one of the things we have to be very careful about is is to have a common agreement as to what these words mean, you know, so that we can have okay, we both agree, we understand what the word blue is. So when we say this is blue, okay, we're cool, you know, we, we both understand what we're saying. So so we have to be careful of common language. That word demonized, themonion, um, in the ancient Greek, is a tricky word. It it um, to give an illustration, um, I, I once, when I was young, I went on a pilgrimage to Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> and um, when I went there, they always have a, a, a bust of, of his head, and um, then somebody steals it, and then a couple of years goes by, and they, somebody replaces it. And um, recently, I was, I, kind of, I was stunned uh, to see that somebody had put another bust of Jim Morrison's head on his grave, but they had put a, a, a phrase in Greek there. And so I'm looking at this phrase in Greek, and because I understand it, I was just going like, what's this? And and the phrase was, kataton demonion aftu, which, which, and I'm looking at I'm translating it, and I'm just going, kataton, from the Gospels, means according to. And ton demonion eaftu means according to his own demon. And I had this huge um, disagreement with that and, and wrote something about it with that as an epigraph. And then I had a conversation with a good friend of mine. And he said, no, you know, the ancient Greek language of that word doesn't necessarily mean demon. It means spirit. I happen to disagree with that very much. I'm a modernist. Um, but, you know, uh, he says according to his own spirit, which, you know, it's a, it's a nice thought for Jim Morrison, but, but it also runs at risk of, of when you take your own spirit without regard to anybody else or everybody else or society, um, you know, you, you run that risk of being demonized as well as being spiritualized. Um, uh, Sejlo Milos has, has a very well-known poem um, called um, Ars Poetica, with a question mark. And he, his big point on that poem is, is that <coughs> he's always felt that it, there was a demonion writing through him, and he always prayed that it was a good one rather than a bad one. And um, 
I also didn't like that. I, I think that's one of the risky words. Well, how does one words. tell if it's a good or a bad one? Well, as we were talking earlier, as we were walking over, um, we were talking a little bit about this and saying, well, isn't ego, isn't writing wrapped up in motivation? What is our motive for expressing ourselves? What is our motive for writing something? So in a sense, an ego can be a good thing if you're using the right motive. And it can be a negative thing if you are writing or, or making a choice based upon your self needs or, or needs of uh, the community. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. It's how do you know whether it's good or bad? I would, I would say that we investigate our motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, do we seek to do good? Do we seek to serve ourselves or do we seek to serve a community? Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I appreciate in your writing is that even when you ask questions for yourselves, you're also asking questions for all of us. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a wonderful thing about pilgrimage that is shared. Um, before I met Scott, I didn't know any of you people existed. You know, I thought I was alone. And seriously, you know, you write in isolation. I didn't think anybody else was interested in, in spirituality or pilgrimage. I thought it was just me and my father, because I went to church with my father and, and your father and, um, you know, getting you to read as a child. I think it's complicated, though, because part of, for, for me, uh, the process of writing, a lot of it is giving up motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that's a complicated issue. For me, and the the issue of community is complicated for me too, because my sense is that writing poems is a kind of triaxial condition. You know, there's the poet, then there's their demon, then there's the audience, the community, or whatever. And part of the service of poetry is to enact that demonization, so that the audience or the community gets to witness a fuller definition of the human. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times, I mean, uh, one could err in so many ways given that, you know, but I mean, ideally speaking, for instance, in the, in the case of somebody like Jesus or Buddha or Lao Tzu or somebody, I think what they did was they enacted the reality of an enhanced, expanded uh, version of the human, that is, the human embedded in God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be very troubling to the community. It was in Jesus' time, it was in Socrates' time, you know, Lao Tzu's time. I mean, so that could be very troubling. Um, so it, I, I don't know. So in a way, uh, the poet isn't, I don't feel the poet is necessarily even talking to the audience. You know, uh, they, may be, uh, they might write with knowledge that the audience is a witness, but I think that the audience is a witness to the demonization, and that's the service of poetry, in fact, you know. And the other thing uh, that I notice is, my sense is that uh, oh, there's a million things going on. Hey, my, my 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 feeling is that uh, how, how do I say this? It seems to me that a poem can be broken down into like three bodies. You know, there's the heard body of the poem, and it's mostly made up of the stressed syllables. I mean, and we read. We, when we think we understand something, we're mostly looking at the stressed syllables, it seems to me, of a poem. Then there's the barely heard body of the poem, that is, the body of the poem that's made up of the unstressed syllables. And in fact, you can have a lot, that body can be very big, and we're not even aware of it. You know? 
And then there's even a larger body. I think it's the actual body of the poem. That is the body that's unheard. So there's the heard, there's the barely heard, and there's the completely unheard body of the poem. That would be made up completely of pauses. I used to think that the word was the smallest unit of meaning in a poem. I think the pause is even a more... You know, I, my aunt is a physicist, uh, and we've talked about this. Uh, you know, the physicists are so... They're looking for the smallest unit of uh, materiality. It seems to me that that's the pause. I mean, when you get past materiality... You, and, you know, physicists are all saying, well, wait a minute, how come when we look way down into materiality, there is no materiality to apparent materiality, you know, because the smallest unit of meaning is a pause, I would say. So uh, I would say that when you write a poem, you're working at the quantum level. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you look at pauses in a poem, they're made up of commas or periods or stanza breaks or line breaks. And I think the line break is the most mysterious human pause there is. I mean, I won't even say it's human. I think it's full of God, you know. Mm -hmm. But most of our meaning, I think, is is packed into those pauses, you know, even a regular sentence, those pauses are everything. They're like the hinge on which everything turns, you know, a uh, uh, sentence can go one way or the other, depending on what you do at that, at that juncture of the pause. So it seems to me if that's the case, then, and if a poem is a model of psyche, I think every poem is made in the image of the maker, like we are made in the image of our maker, uh, I think that, that then the poem is made in the image of Psyche, and it seems to me that there must be those three bodies to Psyche, too, right? Now, the question is, the unheard body of Psyche, what, when that, when that, uh, you know, Lorca was demonized by the Duende, uh, Whitman by America, uh, Emerson by God, death, whatever, you know, Dickinson by the void, uh, so, you know, so it seems to me that it's the nature, it's built into the work that we're demonized by something bigger, you know. And also, we could, I mean, hinging on that word, we can also say that we're spiritualized by all of those things as well. Right, right. So uh, it, it just strikes me as, you know, looking at, at all of us who are interested in language, that fundamentally what we, we do wrestle with is expressing ourselves expressing our breaths expressing our thoughts you know in breath and and that just becomes a wonderful opportunity uh, one of the things that I was saying earlier to Scott was um, when I first met Lee Young I have never done this before in my life he was reading with Cyrus Cassells in um, New York City and I was either living in Colorado or Florida at the time, I can't remember which one, but I actually got on an airplane and flew out to New York for this reading. And um, because uh, I was in Colorado, because Jerry Stern had uh, said, yeah, you guys are alike, you gotta meet each other. So, um, so I uh, saw his reading and I flew out and that's where we first met. And um, the, the one thing that I thought was, revelatory about the reading and I especially um, encourage you to come to Lee Young's reading later this afternoon yeah. yes is every time I've heard Lee Young read I learn something different and what I appreciate about your reading is in a sense the way you breathe during the reading um, I, I've really learned how to read slower how to 
how to slow down and listen equally for the pauses in your reading. I think what we find in the silent bits, those, those extended pauses you had mentioned is the domain of God. I think there's an accuracy to that because um, I've been sitting here for the past 30 seconds trying to think of this famous name. Um, the, the young man who was liberated from Auschwitz, who survived, uh, went on to become Eli, Eli Wiesel. Eli Wiesel, um, who, who's one of, one of his quotes that I value a lot is, and the silence of God is God. And I, I return to that an awful lot. And when you read, I have learned to be equally attendant to the pauses as well as to what's being said. So I think one of the things that we find in a poem that is disseminated, whether visually by reading or auditorily, you know, by being spoken and hearing, is, is nuance, is, is more of the identity than the exclamation of the identity. I, I think um, that's a large part of it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like in, in reading your poetry and in struggling with my own ekphrasis is the idea of pilgrimage. You know, it's, it's, it's a journey, it's a search, and perhaps we're not sure what we're expressing. Um, sometimes we only come to that understanding during the expression or even after the expression. So I was going to ask you, one of my questions is, is would you be able to give commentary on, on your own sense of pilgrimage and what you might be journeying toward? Because I've seen a progression from the first book to the third book and, and to some of the other poems I've seen that are not in books. And uh, <coughs> encouraging. Yeah. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I have an answer for, for that. I, I, I'm, my sense is that... The, you know, my sense is that the, the work, the opus, isn't a poem or a book of poems or anything like that, but it's something like self-knowledge. And uh, now I'm of the feeling that that's impossible, that self-knowledge is somehow impossible because I, uh, I don't seem to be able to get a handle on who I am or what I am, you know. So that, that's, that's a real problem, uh, I mean, you know, it dawns on me, I have no clue as to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. you know? You know, I should have been like uh, the, 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 what do they call it, the uh, uh, visual aid when Brett Lott was talking about fools, you know? <laughs> I should be standing up there with a point, he should have had a pointer and said, because I have no clue as to what I'm doing, you know? I, I don't know when poems come, I don't know where they come from, I don't know why I write them, I don't know why I'm obsessed by them, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what my, you know, I, I know, I know, the only thing is I, I long for a demonized life, a life that is uh, completely embedded in, well, our lives are embedded in God, but we don't always feel it. I mean, in your last letter, you talked about that, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, 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 and it seems to me that poetry is a, is, is a possible uh, 
a yoga that we can do. Uh, our art, it seems to me, is, 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 a, is a supreme form of yoga. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, you know, and the word yoga means link or connection. You know, um, mm -hmm. it, it's a way to uh, bind us or to remind us, so that we live in remembrance of our constant, uh, uh, our original condition, that is, our sacred condition, you know, mm -hmm. our embeddedness in nature and nature's embeddedness in God, and so on. Well, I think you've really hit on something that is, is very fundamental um, to. Um, there's a phrase in the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and um, Scott and I uh, attend a, a Greek Orthodox Church, and there's this one phrase which is, is never translated correctly, and what I think you've really hit, on, hit upon it um, is, is an irini proelthomen, in peace let us attend, or they say proskomen, which means attend. And sometimes you see translations where it says, let us be attentive. And I really radicalize um, the church I attend because I'm always telling people, now that's not what you should be saying. What you should be saying is, pay attention. And I think that maybe that's our sacred nature, is, is when we are focused, when we are paying attention. And, and so it's a wonderful phrase. Um, to, to be able to pay attention to the world, to each other, and, and that's where the ego comes in, whether we're focused purely on the self or on other people and ourselves in relationship to other people. Um, I find that maybe when we write poetry, we're focused. And when we express ourselves, we're really focused on what we're saying. Um, and, and I think that's the one thing that, you know, can ultimately give us glimpses of divinity, is when we are paying <clears throat> And so I'm always saying, you know, um, I want it on my tombstone from that poem that, that I read with Philip, um, you know, a writer of silence, I paid attention to the world. If we pay attention to our lives, our existence, our God, our relationship with God, then we become more aware of it actually being there. Um, uh, much of our lives are spent in distraction. And maybe creative writing is a way we can sort of like stop the world, stop the distraction, and really focus and sort of pay attention to the world and return. So, so I think your commentary uh, on that is, is right on target. Should we take some questions? Yeah, I was about to say, yes, please. We have microphones here, too. Go ahead. Be loud. <laughs> well, I love that idea that uh, when you said that, the, that, when you alluded to the impossibility of self-knowledge, I, I said, yes, exactly. Because it, it occurred to me that, uh, isn't that, I mean, that seems to me so reassuring that the self is not eclipsed by our knowledge of the self. And that, and that being in the image of God, for instance, uh, isn't that as it should be, that the self is unknowable, just as God is finally uh, un unknowable. Uh, it cannot be reduced to any paraphrase of who God is. And, uh, and, and similarly, the self, uh, con constructed and offered in that image, is... is So I find, you know, that was... Uh, 
all of this has been interesting, but that was the part where I went, oh, yes, I'm going to go steal that and write something about that right now. <laughs> no. But I, I love that idea, and, and it must be in some sense a reassurance to know that the self isn't finally reducible to uh, s- some, some uh, rational attempt at packaging it. Yeah, and the difficult part uh, for me, Scott, is when we work on the poem, how to impart that unknown, the mystery uh, to the reader. Not talk about it. You can talk about the mystery. You know, I mean to enact that mystery. And, and that. Ergo, the the line break that you alluded to as well. I mean that that's the opportunity for for the syntax itself to open and to slip and to suggest more. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it it's how you work the line, and you do work the line in you know in, in a way that poets ought to be working lines, and and so that we have that that particular silence at the end of the line is is. Is an opportunity. Certainly, the syntax sustains itself as one moves through that. But at that opening, you know, so many other ideas can occur, mm-hmm. and which I think is somehow analogous to this business of the enormity that, mm-hmm. that we uh, want to. Do. Doesn't the poem become an embodied the embodiment of your of your demon, as you were describing earlier? The poet and the demon, the triad. But, but later on, when you started to describe the poem, I mean, isn't, isn't that what it does? It becomes an embodiment of that, you know, demon, good or bad? Yeah, well, I would hope. I would hope that, you know. My feeling is sometimes I notice that in my own work, and, and, and maybe in uh, some work in, in general, that we, uh, w- there's a kind of over-privileging of, like, rational, the rational, and when I when I notice that I'm about uh, I'm rational about ten percent of my life, you know that, that somehow that I have to account for that ninety percent. And how do I account for that? And I think Lorca did that. I think you know, Frost did it occasionally. And, and I think I mean, that the irrationality, uh, yeah, because poetry is the speech uh, of our complete psychic inheritance, which is God, to, you know, ultimately. So I would say, well, let me just say it. I mean, poetry is, God, is, is God's speech, not mine. But how do, I, how do I learn to displace myself so that it isn't me talking? I'm not interested in talking. I, I want God to talk. And it seems to me at this point I've got it narrowed down at least to the pauses that somehow God is more there than when I'm talking, you know. But it, it, so what I, yeah, what I... We want, I, I mean, we want to try and communicate that as well and do that in miniature... Counter, or voice or something. Right, right. Yeah. So I think that the highest service a poem can do is to literally impart God to the reader. So that when the reader reads it, they're not they don't they're not getting a person talking about God. You know, it is it is God speaking through the human being, through the human being's dying breath, you know, God revealing it's God's self. And, and so that's the hardest part. You know, because then, you, then we come to that thing again about shattering the human countenance, how it, on the one hand, enhances, and on the other hand, 
you know, I think you have somebody like Dickinson whose syntax itself is shattered, you know, and I think that's, I don't think that was a literary device. I don't, you know. Uh, and for instance, Neruda in Residence on Earth, especially the first and second volumes, I think there's a kind of shattering of syntax of, of even what we understand by meaning and sense, you know. And uh, I don't think one does, I don't think that's a literary activity. I think that's a, I think you go there, you risk a lot, you know, and uh, yeah, so it is an embodiment of that. It that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. The, the one good thing yeah. about well, the one good thing about writing is is, is that there uh, there is there is displacement and shattering, but there is also reassembly, you know. And all of us, all of us who read, all of us who hear, we reassemble that message into ourselves. So we get the intake of somebody else's mm -hmm. exhalation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I th I think that um, that whole image of shattering um, has kind of a, a, a I don't know what other term to use, but kind of like a collective unconscious uh, element to it. Um, so that <clears throat> let me make it concrete. If I'm in a church and I have an image of the stained glass shattering, then I'm I'm no longer contained within that, then I'm, my, whatever my spirit is, is actually merging into all of what's there and not contained um, within the concept of having, having a sacred experience. Then I just become the sacred experience. And I think that the poem tries to do that, and I think that's why... Um, I think that's why the demons come and why they're important. But I do think it's very hard to keep balance. And I think that's why we do so much revision, because we're trying to get our balance. Thank you. Leung, I saw you um, profiled in Poets and Writers magazine a while ago. Um, and you talked about Actually, I loved how you said that you preferred the old kung fu movies and Jackie Chan to Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because Ang Lee was all about beauty, but it was surface beauty, and that you preferred the visceral effect that you get from that. I know that seems off topic, but I think it's so much about not being rational, about um, transcending the rational, and I wondered, um, that word visceral stuck with me, I wondered... How do you, I mean, you've just said you're a fool and, and maybe you don't know, but how do you stay visceral or out of, out of head, out of, out of reason, out of rational? Do you have ways in your life that you work at that to stay there? Yeah, I, 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 I do. I have many, you know, I, I was raised practicing uh, breathing meditation. So I think that really puts you into your body. You know, because you're paying attention to two inches below your navel, moving in and out, and you just, you know, and you try to keep that throughout the day. But, you know, I have to admit to you, sometimes, I mean, there are more short, there are fast ways to, to, to getting out of your head, you know, and they're not always um, wonderful, you know. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm... Yeah, I would say breathing, uh, writing poems. And the thing, uh, Nick, when you say pay attention, you know, but the word attention to me is so layered too, you know. I mean, how, pay attention with what? Our eyes, the soles of our feet, the hair on the back of my knuckles? I mean, 
But it seems to me that when we're breathing, we're paying attention uh, with everything. You know, mm-hmm. everything comes to pay attention, and you start to recognize that everything is that you're paying attention isn't just looking at something hard, or, you know, or even smelling or whatever. It's it's your whole body is breathing. Mm-hmm. So you recognize the fact that your body itself is breathing. Actually, your body's being breathed. Exactly. You know, and uh, so that kind of uh, thing really helps. You know, and of course, writing poems I think is a way to. To get me out of my head, because when I look at a poem, I can, for my own sake, I recognize, oh, there's a lot of mentality in this poem. I don't like that, you know. Right. So I, I, then the poem to me is a form of divination. When I write a poem, it's a form of divination for me, you know. Because when I write something, I think, wow, am I? Re- I'm really in my head this morning a lot, you know. So it tells me I better get back, okay. you so know. Your marker, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do we have a question here? No, we'll uh, there's, a, there's a couple of things. There's so much richness floating around the room. <laughs> it's, um, but uh, you, you were talking. Uh, uh, you were talking about the audience being the third component in this, and I think about Emily Dickinson, whose audience didn't come to her until three or four or five decades after her death. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, also the sense of uncertainty as to where the daemon comes from, whatever the, the trickiness of that uh, yeah. uh, that language. I've been uh, been, been uh, trying to do some writing about Luther and and, and Luther's own theological reflection with the significance for poetry. As a theologian, he was terrified that he might be way off on the wrong track. I mean, it was, a, and it, was, it was a question that had been put to him by his father at the time of his ordination into the priesthood. You know, are you sure it was God that took you, that, that moved you in this direction? And that's, it seems like that's one of the terrors of, uh, of, of the, the, the sense of fracturing. I mean, you, you, you talked so nicely, it was so nice that you brought Jim Morrison into the conversation because, there, I mean, there's, I think that uh, here, here's a person who is fractured by the daemon, and it's still fascinating, but it's it's still frightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what what creates all the anxiety in me. I mean, somebody like Sylvia Plath. Yes, she was obviously demonized, you know. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say, well, those were the lower demons. We shouldn't pay attention to that. There's a richness there. See, the problem comes when I when I when I think, or let me let me put it this way. Okay, poetic consciousness is the most complete form of human consciousness we've accomplished so far. In the, let, me, let me define that. I define poetic consciousness in the same way Blake maybe thought about it. You know, that is a psyche well informed of its own parts. Uh, that is, our, our, our intellectual functions aware of our spiritual functions. Both of those in communication aware of our erotic functions. And all three of those in communication aware of our... Uh, uh, you know, emotion. Uh, so there's, you know, all all of the functions of, of human being are, are are communicating and aware, and whatever repression is going on isn't going on unconsciously. Because it seems to me that for us to uh, function, sometimes we have to repress huge parts of our personality, our, our psyche, our self. Even sometimes we, I hate to say it, I think we repress God, the God in us, in order to function in the world, in the secular world. You know, that that seems to me an impoverishment. You know, but then how do you, but how do you integrate all that stuff? I don't mean just integrate it like a big soup. I mean I think it's a psyche that's highly differentiated, 
has a lot to do with the making of great art, you know. But the danger, I think, does come from integrating materials that, for instance, Plath was integrating really dark material. Quite frankly, I think Lorca was integrating really dark material too, you know. And, and I, I think what, what, what you just said reminded me of something that you said a minute ago uh, um, about uh, the, the poet's identity not being defined by one fragment of the psyche. Because I think that for I think that we're a little in a culture that wants us to be defined by one fragment of the psyche, mm-hmm. whereas you suggested no, we're much more complicated mm-hmm. than that. And usually that fragment is the ego fragment, right? That's the one we identify with. Now, I guess what I'm trying to say, maybe I'm just in a dark mood or something, I don't know. The, the <laughs> radical decentering of from ego-centered to God-centered isn't, my experience is, it doesn't come without real challenges to our own concept of who we are and what we are and what we're doing in the world. It isn't like, yeah, wow, wow, you know, this is so happy, you know. I mean, it could, I, I suppose, you know. At the moment, it doesn't seem that way to me. It seems like a real challenge to who I think I am or what I think I am. But you've been reading Lorca. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's true, yeah. Question over here. Um, much of what you've been saying has reminded me of uh, T.S. Eliot's tradition in the individual talent. And I was just wondering how you personally um, sort of unify those two paradoxical concepts of you know, more universal traditional ideas with personal style or you know like evacuating the ego but still having a style you know yeah I, well <clears throat> i love that question you know I, i'm gonna have to really sh- show you how ignorant i i am I, and uh, because i my sense is that uh there's a dialogue, I think, that an artist, any artist in any medium, carries on with the culture, with the canon, the tradition. That, to me, feels like a horizontal dialogue. Right? My dialogue with the canon, right? Other books, and, and so on. That's good. It can be very fruitful, I think. But if I think if the work doesn't mature and become a dialogue that is completely vertical, it's no longer a dialogue with the canon. No more allusions to... Somehow all of that material is very truly assimilated, and the stuff that does, isn't true just falls off like caked mud, you know, that you can brush off, and you go on. But if the work, it seems to me, doesn't reach a kind of dialogue with our eternity on the one hand and our death on the other, and that's a vertical proposition, seems to me, then the work never matures. So you have a really well-made graduate student level in, you want to call it, you know, like really good work, but it's still a dialogue with the canon. The, the equivalent would be a child who grows up and the shoes they wear and the clothes and the hair and everything is a dialogue with the canon, right, with what other people are wearing, with what TV says. And if that child never becomes mature and says, no, 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 I'm doing this because of some inner edict, not because of a dialogue with the canon. You know, not even a dialogue with the community. If that person doesn't ever become that, it seems to me a completely vertical state of affairs, it seems to me pointless. I don't think, I really don't think that a dialogue with the canon, with this horizontal dialogue is the, the last play, with the tradition, is the, is, is the most fruitful thing. And, and I might, that, that's my big problem with Eliot, too. 
that a lot of times when I'm reading him, I feel as if he is he has taken uh, theology and all that stuff, all the stuff that he read, you know, and turned it into really good poetry. I I sometimes am curious about like where's the person who. Well, I don't I don't want to bash Eliot. I love Eliot. You know, I love Eliot. But you know, there are large parts of the four quartets that are prose. You know? I mean that that bothers me. But I don't I don't I don't know. What was your question? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, my question was um about your statement about that uh poetry is, you know, triaxial with the, the demon, the poet and the audience. Um I couldn't help but just kind of get the image in my mind as a poet being sort of an intermediary between the demon, his own, his or her own demon, and the audience, um, and kind of about the motivation where the poet feels motivated to try to connect the audience to something bigger than himself, his demon, um, or the demon itself driving him or her to do it, where where that comes from and I, I kind of got this image of the demon if it's the source of the poetry being kind of like a, a god figure like god where the poetry you know should be whereas the poet is kind of like almost the jesus figure trying to form a bridge between the audience and something bigger than the audience and i guess my question was is poet do you feel that poetry is really kind of a like a spring out of oneself um, that the motivation comes from within, or that does the motivation come from without? Like you feel almost forced to do it, that you have no choice, like it's your demon or whatever. Well, both. I, I would, I would say that it's you know, poem poem comes from both realms, the outside and the inside. But uh, you know, <clears throat> in Taoism, there's this phrase. It, it could be translated as the totality of causes. And what the, what the Taoists meant by that is if you look at anything in the world, I mean, any specific thing, you know, these pants, my shoes, this microphone, uh, Nick's red shirt, or this event, you know, if you look at anything or any event carefully, if you pay attention, you'll see that the whole universe conspired to make it happen. You know, I mean, if you think about how this event happened, well, first of all, everybody had to come here, right? And how about all the people who set it up? How about the people who designed this college? How about all the people who flew the airplanes that brought us here, or drove the cars? And how about the people who made the cars? How about the people who made the? How about the inventor of airplanes? How about? Do you know what I mean? I mean, the, the, I mean, when you break any event or thing down, and a physicist will tell you a thing is event. That's all it is. It's time and space, and that's what this is, right? Uh, so if you break anything down, you recognize that a totality of causes brought about everything, anything, anything. You know, you can look at anything and just you'll have to break it down into like who made the rubber, who invented rubber for this cord, who, and so on and so forth. You know, it seems to me that that condition of the totality of causes, that saturated condition of meaning, of reference, of presence, uh, the mouth of that condition is a poem. So that a poem is the voice of that saturated condition, the totality of causes. 
So it would be very hard to say, well, I wrote this poem because of that. I, mean, I don't even know what it was. You know? It could be the caffeine I drank, or the caffeine I didn't have, or the dream I had last night, or the dream I didn't have last night, or the phone call I had from my wife this morning. Who knows what makes the poem? You know, maybe I picked up a leaf yesterday, and the smell of the leaf mold is still on my hands this morning. You know, you know maybe it's because I, I got too much sleep, maybe because I didn't get enough sleep. Who can actually say where the poem comes from? It's a totality of causes. And it seems to me that ideally, the, the poem is a condition, is a mouthpiece of that condition. And if that condition is our condition 24 hours a day, I mean, think about it. What, we're always at the center of the mandala, of the totality of causes. Right? Everything is, a, is its own center of that mandala, the totality of causes. And so it seems to me that poetry ultimately is the language of that condition. And that, we recognize a poem by the density of references, right? The density of language, uh, and how a poem seems to irradiate meaning as, as opposed to have a linear meaning, meaning, you know? All of that, it seems to me that those are just the definitions of, of, of the totality of causes. So it, it would be very hard to say what well, comes from the outside, it comes from the inside. I would say it comes from it all. Poetry is the locally inflected voice of the all. It's the locally inflected voice of God. You know, it's Nick inflects it, Scott inflects it, I, I inflect it, Dickinson inflects it, but it's the, ultimately, hopefully, it would be the voice of God. Otherwise, we're living in a rumor, right, that there's, you know, there's a God in us, you know. I mean, it, it would be a rumor if we couldn't manifest it. And on that note, because of time limitations, um, thank you, Lee Young. Thank you, thank you to everybody. Our thanks to Lee Young Lee and Nick Samaras for this thoughtful conversation and for their written words, too. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.